My racing career isn't just about me. It's about the team, the fans, the sponsors, the families, the tracks, the whole sport. Join us over the next five months on the Junior Nation Appreciation Tour, where we show appreciation to where it's owed. This is Dale Jr., and you're listening to Dirty Mo' Radio. I was happy for Dad after it was over and he had won, but I don't like to finish second. This is the Daytona 500, and it's, thank God! It's an accomplishment that we'll not forget. There's a lot of satisfaction in winning the championship. Jeff Gordon out of turn number four. He will lay claim to his first ever Winston Cup victory, and it comes in the Coca-Cola 600. Rick Hendrick, I hope I'm with you for a long time. At the end of the day, you still want to see a lot of people in those stands. I am a history. (laughs) Back in the day, with Steve Richards and Ron LeMasters. NASCAR history is a rich tapestry of speed, personality, and great racing. Here at Back in the Day, we celebrate that history by keeping it alive, just like Dale Earnhardt Jr. did on the original TV show. We'll take important dates, races, and trends in NASCAR and pass them along to you. Here comes Back in the Day from the Exalta Studio inside Junior Motorsports. Watkins Glen, a small town in the midst of the Finger Lakes region of New York State, has been a part of the American motorsports scene for just about as many years as there's actually been a motorsports scene in this country. The original circuit was made up of actual public roads, and in 1956, a permanent road course complex was built. The track hosted the U.S. Grand Prix for Formula One from 1961 to 1980, and has been called the mecca of North American road racing throughout the years. It's close enough to Woodstock to have hosted several major outdoor concerts as well, some of them with Woodstock-like tendencies. NASCAR traditionally has been about racing hard, turning left, and beating your rivals straight up. So what does it say about NASCAR racing when titles are decided not at Darlington or Dover, but at Watkins Glen? Watkins Glen is a road course in the southern tier, a twisting, diving 2.45-mile jigsaw puzzle that separates champions from pretenders and ringers from real live racing heroes. It's made up primarily of right-hand turns, which is a problem if you're used to turning left, don't you think? It's not that NASCAR drivers can't turn right, it's just that at 34 of the 36 events on the schedule, they don't, unless they're coming to the garage area in practice or leaving their pit boxes after a stop. When the NASCAR Cup Series came to the Glen in August of 1986, there was excitement tinged with a little bit of trepidation. How would the show come off? Would it be a good addition? The answers to that are really good and hell yes. Tim Richmond won that first race, driving for Rick Hendrick, despite an engine miss in the early laps. We held back a little bit there for a while to just make sure we had the brakes to be able to race them at the end, and uh, the car worked great. I mean, Harry Hyde and the whole Folgers uh, crew, they, you know, they, they're making me look real, real good, and they're making it a lot easier on me to, you know, to win races, and, um, you know, I, I can't take uh, much credit because they're the ones that uh, put, put this equipment under me, and Rick Hendrick. The following year, 1987, saw Rusty Wallace win his first at the Glen. In 1988, Wallace and Ricky Rudd put on a show over the final few laps, and it lit the fire for the continued success of the annual pilgrimage to upstate New York. Wallace pressed Rudd at every corner over those final laps and nudged the rear of Rudd's Buick as they turned out of the final corner to the checkered. Oh, they they bumped! Here they come off the seventh corner! Who's going to win it? They're side by side. Rusty is well off the track. He cannot win it, and Ricky Rudd does. Unbelievable! That last three laps, I tell you, that was something else. I saw Rusty coming. I- I saw Daryl. I was sitting Daryl up. I was going to get him in turn one with about uh, three laps to go. I was going to outbreak him. Then, then he developed some kind of a problem. I don't know what happened to him. But then here come Rusty, and he, he was coming hard. And uh, I was like, I was mirror driving, just trying to block him. We were a little bit lazy coming on to the front straightaway. 
I knew where he was going to make his run because he, he showed me a couple laps before that, and I just blocked his line, and he ran into my back bumper, turned me sideways, and he got in the dirt, tried to pass me on the outside. It was really something. It was the first of many thrilling finishes to come. While most believe that NASCAR came to Watkins Glen in 1986, that's not the case. There were three NASCAR events at the track before then, beginning in 1957. NASCAR Hall of Famer Buck Baker won that 101-mile event from the pole, besting 19 other cars. In 1964, NASCAR returned to the Finger Lakes, and Billy Wade won over 25 rivals. In 1965, the legendary Marvin Panch drove to victory in the last WGI race for the series until it returned in 1986. What else was going on in 1986? Glad you asked. The Chicago Bears completed their Super Bowl shuffle by pounding the New England Patriots 46-10 in Super Bowl XX, and the New York Mets won the World Series thanks to Bill Buckner's error in Game 6. The Space Shuttle Challenger explodes 73 seconds after takeoff from Cape Canaveral. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. It was one of the most heartbreaking disasters in U.S. history. Halley's Comet comes within 63 million kilometers of Earth, the closest it would get this time around the galaxy. Halley's Comet, I said a Halley's Comet. Several beloved stars slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God in 1986, including James Cagney, Cary Grant, Desi Arnaz, the beloved Scatman Carruthers, and Ted Knight, whose enduring role as Judge Smales in the movie Caddyshack, Well, we're waiting. And his clueless weatherman Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore Show lives on through the generations. This is a great country. <laughs> you know what makes it great? Because you don't have to be witty or clever as long as you can hire someone who is. <laughs> that brings us to our topic for today. Watkins Glen International and its place in NASCAR's history. Adding a road course to the series was sort of a requirement after Riverside International Raceway was bulldozed to make room for a shopping mall in California. They needed at least one more, I suppose. Watkins Glen seemed the best bet as it put a race outside the normal NASCAR footprint and tapped into the rabid motorsports world of New York. They race a lot up there, let me tell you. And many of the top stars in the region came south to try their hand at NASCAR. The Bodine brothers came, but it wasn't just drivers. Many top crew chiefs, Kirk Shelmerdine, Robin Pemberton, and his brother Ryan, who's now director of competition at Junior Motorsports, were but a few of those who made the trek down to play with the big boys. Let's bring in Steve Richards, longtime broadcaster and pit reporter for the Performance Racing Network, as well as a producer of Back in the Day, Steve, road course racing in NASCAR, pro or con? Oh, definitely pro. I mean, you're pro road course. I think Absolutely. any real race fan is pro road course. And I like Watkins Glen a lot better than, than Sonoma, even though we broadcast Sonoma on, uh, on PRN. It's a high-speed road course. Right. It's more like a speedway with turns, you know? A messed-up speedway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it really, uh, having driven it in an actual race car, mm -hmm. I can attest to that fact because it's – you go hauling off into turn one, and you think, man, this is really cool. And then you realize you got to turn 90 degrees to the right. Uh-huh. You don't do that unless you're on the highway. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's made for some great racing and some great finishes. So many memorable finishes. I mean, can you think of a track with more memorable finishes than Watkins Glen? Um, maybe Daytona or maybe Talladega, but that's it, really. Well, I'll tell you, I, if you added them up, Watkins Glen may be ahead of both of those tracks. Yeah, and because of its unpredictability. You know, with, mm -hmm. with the plate tracks, you have 
the unpredictable nature of plate racing. But with, with this, I mean, you have to be precise. Exactly. These cars, these stock cars, they don't like to turn mm-hmm. left or right. Right, right. And, you know, you can't throw it around there like you can a, like a, you know, a sports car or a, an open wheel car. And it takes finesse. The brakes aren't all that great. It weighs a lot. This checks all the boxes as far as racing performance goes. Kurt Busch explained why he likes racing at the Glen. It's just fun uh, to balance out the speed in the car and, and find the exact handling characteristics that'll drive you up through the S's faster than anybody else and you know, drive into that bus stop with a ton of speed. It, it's just a unique road course that uh, when you hit it exactly right, it talks to you as far as the, the speed you carry through the corners and when you're supposed to be on the brakes and when you're supposed to use the curbs and not use the curbs. It, uh, it's a fun, fast road course. It's, um, it's just unlike any other road course. A lot of guys don't like road course racing for some reason. Well, because it's not something they do every day. And I bet you when it talks to Kurt, it uses a New York accent. <laughs> hey, what are you doing here, huh? What are you doing? <laughs> Get out of the way. Well, no, and but it, it's unforgiving. You know, you can blow a corner at Darlington, mm-hmm. and 20 seconds later, you're doing it again. There, you have to wait a whole lap, put it together, and remember where the heck you are on the racetrack. That's what a lot of them are not used to having to read brake markers. Right. I mean, at least on the wrong side of the car because <laughs> they're used to reading them on the outside instead of the inside. Well, Jimmy Johnson told us a couple of years ago, he says it's a tough road course because of those high speeds we talked about. It is a very fast, you know, the fastest, we only have two, but the fastest road course we run on. Um, it's considerably faster through all the turns than what we have at, uh, at Sonoma. So when the faster you go, the more the, the car is dependent upon arrow, and we'll consciously make decisions from an arrow standpoint here more than we would at, uh, at Sears Point. So uh, as this track's tough. I think there's a lot of time to be made um, through the S's and up on the long um, back straightaway. And um, when you're right through there, you're on the throttle a long time, burning a lot of fuel. But the tough thing here is the way the mileage works out in our fuel burn, and you're right on the edge of uh, if you get good fuel mileage and compl- have some cautions fall for you, you can go one less stop than everyone else. I have yet to have that happen. I just use the throttle too much, drive the car with the throttle a lot, and usually have to make that extra stop. And I feel like that's hurt us at the end of the day, um, being positioned to win. Uh, we still get good finishes, but to win, I, I wish... I could, we could, wherever the fault lies, get better fuel mileage. But I've been consistent. I just don't get good fuel mileage. It doesn't matter if it's here or an oval, <laughs> wherever it is. It, it's not my strong suit. Well, gee, Jimmy Jimmy Johnson has a flaw. Oh, my God. <laughs> He'll tell you he has more than one. Oh, I, I know. But look, road course racing is about throttle control. Mm-hmm. And it's about on and off the brakes. And it's about being in the right gear. When you race in the for 34 of those 36 events, you're basically... You know, it's hammered down. You go through the gearbox once, unless you're at Pocono or Indy, you don't shift, more mm-hmm. mainly, mm-hmm. And, or maybe New Hampshire even. But, I mean, you, know, you don't have to think about it here. You have to think about it, and it's a whole, it's a completely different thing than what they're used to. But I, I think a lot of them, you know, somebody like an Almondinger or an Ambrose who's come through road racing, mm-hmm. uh, Boris said, is, is usually competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's in a good car. If he's in a good car, right. You know, Sam Hornish. Those guys are, are really good at the Labonis were, were amazing at this. Yeah. And Rusty Wallace and Ricky Rudd and, you know, people like Tony Stewart and Jeff Gordon were really, really good there. Oh, absolutely. I think it has to do with car control more than anything and the fact that they just hate to lose. Well, Ambrose uh, told us what it's like 
to race at Watkins Glen. This was uh, back in 2013 when he was in the series. Well, there's a lot more going on as far as, uh, you know, what you need to do behind the wheel. You've got a lot more uh, braking and uh, and technique under brakes as well, trying to keep the car from locking the tyres up and downshifting, looking after the gearbox, looking after the car. So you're trying to ride a bull uh, and keep it somewhat under control. You know, the car is, is really powerful and it wants to buck and kick and throw you off every corner and you've just got to manage that you've got to really control um, the brutality of, of a sprint cup car I don't think anyone who has raced a car or has watched car racing can fully appreciate how difficult these sprint cup cars are to get around a road course I mean they're just really heavy they're really powerful they've got not enough brakes and uh, not enough downforce I mean there's just a lot of stuff going on with a really small tire I mean the, the tire that we have on the car is is very small compared to the weight we carry and that's what makes our sport so great whether it's road racing or bristol or michigan it's it's man versus machine it's just really a tough battle out there and it's it's really satisfying when it goes well not so satisfying when it goes wrong and it can go wrong in a hurry i miss him being not in the series me too and now i sort of want to go to outback <laughs> but, <laughs> well i mean he he was a breath of fresh air you know yeah. because he, you know and he came from australian the the, the v8 supercars mm-hmm. those boys get it mm-hmm. i mean if you've ever watched daryl waltrip's film clip from his ride around Mount, Mount panorama mm-hmm. watch that i've never seen Daryl Waltrip so discombobulated in my entire life. <laughs> He's crying in there. Right, it's right. Awesome. But, you know, look, road course racing, we didn't have oval tracks. I think the first oval track we had here uh, in the United States was Indianapolis, and it was built as a test track for what became General Motors. Right. And 1909, mm. when the car was that newfangled thing that would never catch on. That you know, horseless carriage yeah, that horseless. thingy. Yeah. hootie thingy yeah, that's right everybody's there ah, it'll never it'll never we'll never catch on yeah but yeah. you know look and then the first race was was somewhere in illinois in 1895 mm-hmm. and it was around you know local roads and and they weren't straight right were no corners right but if you look at just road course racing in general you know pre-war cameron argetsinger who who ended up you know, founding Watkins Glen, they used to run that through the through the village. Oh wow! Yeah. In, in Watkins Glen, which is you know quite quite nice. Um, it's in the Finger Lakes, very temperate region, except in the winter time, and then you can pretty much ice skate everywhere if you want. Right. Um, but I mean, it, road course racing has its own parallel history to stock car racing, and it's older too. So. Right. Well, it's funny. Um, a few years ago, our show was called Back in the Day. Yes. Okay. And there were some really good road course drivers back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, not way back in the day, but I mean the 80s, the 90s. You had some really good guys like Ricky Rudd. Mm-hmm. You had Rusty Wallace. Um, Ernie Irvin was a really good uh, road course driver. Uh, who else? Mark Martin. The Labonis. The Labonis, like you mentioned. And um, I came across some audio of some of these drivers talking about how they learned a road course race okay okay so here's ernie irvin jeff bodine kenny wallace mark martin and ricky rudd 
where I lived at is San Manancio Canyon. Um, you, know, you can go up that road and you can pretty much know if you could road race or not. And my dad used to always, um, you know, go up and he'd say, man, you, you'll never be able to run this fast up this road. And so a couple years later, um, I proceeded to start running faster and he was running up that road. So most of the time we didn't really drive something very good. It was like an El Camino or, you know, whatever just happened to be in the yard and a little Dodge van or something. You know, we didn't have no road race cars. I blame my ability, whatever that is, on, on my early days uh, when I was a kid running the back roads around Chemung, New York in my 50, uh, 56 Plymouth. So, uh, well, I can't tell you everything that happened in that 56 Plymouth Savoy. Midnight blue. Do you believe it? <laughs> it was beautiful. Uh, whatever I do on a road course, I blame it on those days. You know, when I got my first 68 Chevelle, had a lot of fun running through the back roads. And uh, I run in the ditches so many times in Missouri, but I knew if I let off, I'd be stuck down under. So once I got in the ditch, I just stayed wide open and drove that old piece of bummer out of there. I do remember maybe I was four, you know, standing in his lap, driving a car down a dirt road, and there's wooden bridges that were one lane wide back then. And of course, he's driving fast. And uh, I remember crying starting to cry and telling him I can't, you know, I can't do it. Well, then we'll wreck. That's what he said. Anyway, uh, we've done a lot of things. We had a lot of fun. Anytime I wanted to go out there and throw a car around a little bit, we'd always go out to my dad's junkyard, his salvage yard business. We'd find something that would run. Maybe the whole back end was tore off of it or the front end was tore off of it, but he had access roads all through the junkyard, and we'd get out there and slide them around, dirt track them, and uh, we could tear them up as long as we tore up the damaged parts that were already damaged that he couldn't sell. But we, we probably learned more about driving around road courses in the junkyard and racing motorcycles than we did anything. That's pretty cool. That is neat. Now, Mark Martin was talking about sitting in his dad's lap. Right. Julian was a, was a character. Oh, yeah. I met him a few times. Oh, yeah. But uh, that generation, that's Arkansas, too. That's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that generation, really, he's not that much old, older than me. Right, right. But he's, um, that was, you did it or you were a pansy and somebody would take you to task for that. Mm -hmm. But, Mar you know, I think he got over his fear. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, you, you know, road course racing, nowadays everything is formulaic. You, and pardon the pun, but you, they start you in go-karts and then you, or you go to like a Formula Mazda or a Formula Ford or a Formula whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, if you're good enough, they put you in this uh, elf or um, whatever driving series, and they—it's basically Darwinian competition. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, if you if you're good enough, you go to Formula Renault in France, and Renault pays for everything. But there's Toyota, and everybody has farm teams. It's like playing for, uh, you know, your country's national soccer team or whatever. Right. But uh, I, and you know that's that's a whole different deal. That's why you know somebody like Montoya, Juan Pablo Montoya, he came out of the, you know, South America has a very very active cart culture mm -hmm. and he came out of there and, and, and you know Ayrton Senna came out of there and you know all these guys all the good really good road racers out of South America came out of the carts now you'd figure now Jimmy Johnson has never won at Watkins Glen no he's won a couple poles his top finish is third but you'd think maybe his uh, off-road background would help him I think he's never gotten over crashing into the styrofoam block when I look back on that crash, unfortunately, it kind of rung my bell, and I don't have a lot of thoughts that linger from the crash. But uh, I look back, and it still runs on reels now, and take a little bit of pride in the fact that I was the idiot in the car. And then the second part to it is, you know, Jeff Gordon was a key uh, part of uh, me coming to Hendrick. He didn't know who I was prior to that wreck. When I was standing on the roof of the car, he's like, who is this guy? That's, uh, that's when he first started paying attention. So 
granted, it, it was a scary moment in my life, but uh, looking back on it now, it it really led to a lot of good things. Yeah, maybe we need to put some sand or, or like a <laughs> creek in there. Or what. No, you know, and he's he's got exquisite car control. Yeah, really. absolutely. Um, and you know, you don't run through the desert, and you're you're not always pointed straight. Well, but uh, you, you know, I, that is amazing. I just think there's only two road courses, right? right? Okay, so and Chad Canals being Chad Canals, you don't focus on two races out of thirty six. Well, that's true as well, but they started focusing on them back um, in the 90s when Jeff Gordon won all those races, Tony Stewart and them. But you're going to find this interesting. I I found this uh, soundbite with Jimmy Johnson explaining, well, this is back in 2008. He explained or tried to explain why his off-road skill set for him didn't translate to the road courses such as Watkins Glen. And I, I don't know, and it, it's such a good question. I mean, you look at Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart, and they grew up on dirt ovals, running cars without bodies on them. So I don't know what it is that crosses over and, and that works, but through everything we've worked on to look at where speed may be and what I need to do, it's so, such a small difference that, you know, as I said, after it totals up over you know, the course of the event, you get back to start finish line, there's a sizable margin, but to break down a corner and find something that I'm really doing wrong, it's not there. It's just a little everywhere. And the conclusion I've come up with is I just need to do it more often. And in off-road racing, it's really weird. And now it's it's more advanced and developed into similar to, to stock car racing or, or oval track racing. But the turns in off-road racing when I was doing it, they didn't matter. You're more worried about getting over the bumps and obstacles. There's more time to be had going over those bumps than it was than there was in the corners. You know, as technology is developed and they figured out how to make those trucks handle even better in a straight line, the corners became more important. And I think an off-road racer today um, has has a better feel for the corners and what takes place and what I did. And for me, when I came into stock car racing, I had no idea what stagger was, wedge, track bar. I mean, I, I knew how I knew what compression and rebound were in shocks and spring rates, but for jumps, none of that other stuff even mattered. I didn't even know what it was. And it, it's why the ASA series did me uh, so much justice, and especially Howie Leto, who was my crew chief up there. And he literally sat me down with these VHS tapes and a book from this guy named Duke Sutherland that walked me through the basics of stock car racing. And I remember it took me months to understand Wedge, and he literally went in the office and took the little adjusters off the floor, you know, that get the, the table level, and walked me through what Wedge was and how it worked. And then it made sense. I'm like, oh, okay. So it just it just took me a while to understand stock car racing and really what makes the car work through the turns and, and how to do that stuff because I was I was going straight and jumping stuff and in the air. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm hoping that works out for him. Yeah. You know. I, yeah. If, if you can figure out how to drive a, a car on the your road course. Yeah, he might become something someday. Yeah. Well, he, in 2008 he was only what uh three time then. Yeah. And something. now he's like seven time. So mm. Well, you know, it is different, and, you know, you're sitting up higher. The The objective is not the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the objective in a road course car is to make every corner perfect and to maximize your, you know, it's always slow in, fast out. Mm-hmm. Well, these guys want to go, it, it's as hard, you get in the corner hard, and then you worry about the getting out when you get out. It's like, sort of like driving Pocono, but without... You know, uh, there's a right-hander in there somewhere. If you take a right-hander at Pocono, you're out the door. You know what I like about Watkins Glen what? road courses? People don't really get riled up. No. They're, they're calm, and there's rarely uh, there's rarely tempers 
And, well, and, and, of course. I have, uh, <laughs> I have a, I have a story. <laughs> of course, I'm yeah. kidding. Yeah. Uh, there, some of the best races out there has feet have featured some some really cool stuff. Well, the the interesting one to me was the one with Kyle Busch, Brad Keselowski, and Marcus Ambrose. Mm-hmm. They crashed for a solid two and a half miles. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I th- I don't think anybody was really upset at the end mm-hmm. because there was oil all over the track. Right. But you look at I mean just how much they did. They probably that's a two point four five mile road course two point five four four I can't remember which it was, but it's they probably spent five miles crashing. Right. Because you know they were just off and sliding and doing this and that. But this is a good point to bring up too. Okay. Road course racing has different rules than oval track racing does. If you're a road course driver, you are taught not to challenge if you don't have the preferred line heading into a corner before the braking zone, you get out and you let the guy go through the corner. You don't go on the outside. You don't go in the inside. You don't root him out of there. Well, what do stock car guys do? Hey, I, I'm inside the bumper. I'm there. You got to back off. You got to give me room. All right. So that's what kind of leads to all that. And, you know, there's courtesy involved in, in old-fashioned racing, or European racing anyway, mm-hmm. that isn't, is not an effect in NASCAR. I'm not saying NASCAR drivers aren't courteous, but, you know, that's just not the way the game is played. 2.450. 2.450. 220 right. and a half miles. And uh, Partridge in a Pear Tree. Yeah. No. <laughs> 2.45, because 2.54... Don't get me started no, on math. No, yeah, yeah, it's math. No. We're mathing again. Stop, no, stop. don't, don't math. Mem- um, remember when Robbie Gordon was driving the singular wireless car? Yeah, he was bad fast in it. Yeah, Dale Earnhardt Jr. wasn't happy with him one time back in 2008. I can imagine. Yeah, this is uh, about eight and a half seconds of uh, Jr. not being happy with uh, Robbie Gordon over his uh, his radio talking with his spotter. That's like singular. Four bars, more places. Yeah, I wish that everybody walked around with those over their heads measured competence. <laughs> <laughs> Junior will get some good lines in, I'm telling you. How competent you are is how many bars you have <laughs> above your head. I know some people won't have any bars, but well, that's yeah, another story. Yeah. The, Robbie Gordon was probably one of the more talented race car drivers I've ever been around. He could oh, absolutely. anything. Absolutely. He's never even been on a paved track before. He goes to the 24 Hours of Daytona and wins with Jack Roush. Mm-hmm. He goes to Indy cars and wins. I, the most incredible thing I've ever seen, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, uh, driver do, he's at Michigan in an, in an Indy car. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of this at home somewhere. Yeah. Um, it comes from knowing a lot of photographers who will give you pictures. Right, right. Um, he is at the start-finish line at Michigan in uh, Derek Walker's IndyCar. He's going about 225 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. The right front tire blows yeah. as he's going under the flag stand. Uh-huh. He did not hit the wall. Really? No. Got it to turn one to the bottom of turn one without hitting another car or the wall. And, it was, and I have a picture that shows... The carcass of the tire, you can see that. Everything else was gone. You could see the wheel. Mm-hmm. And and he is he is already driving the car off the wall. Wow. Never never got to it. I'm just still amazed that he did not just crash. Back Real in big. 2003, Robbie was asked, why are you such a good road course driver? I don't exactly know. Um, you know, my very first time in a road race car back in uh, 89, we went to Daytona for the 24-hour, and we won it my first time. I, I picked up the road racing thing pretty quick. And we were always 
you know, fairly decent on the road courses or, or pretty good on the road courses with the kart series. And, um, and, you know, the Winston Cup thing came to me pretty easy, and I think it's probably because the off-road cars that I race, uh, they weigh about 5,000 pounds, which is 1,600 pounds more than a Winston Cup car. And you got to flick those around trees all day long. And I think I think that type of sliding the car around uh, taught me how to road race. And You know, it's just not about being able to drive the car. It's about understanding how to set up the chassis, springs, shocks, stuff like that. That's right. Uh, he won at Sonoma mm-hmm. one year. And at the end of, I guess it's, uh, they go through the short shoot and then they turn back up to go up toward turn 11. Mm-hmm. There was a little piece of tape sticking out of the jersey barrier at the end of that turn. Uh-huh. He hit that tape every lap. <laughs> every lap he hit it with the same part of the car. Wow. I watched it happen. It's 2003. Wow. And I'm like, how is he doing that? And the, the tape was only about you know three, four inches long uh-huh. or, or sticking out. He hit it every time. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, we were talking about funny stuff. What about mm-hmm. Juan Pablo Montoya and Kevin Harvick? That's, uh, yeah. You know, that <laughs> Juan Pablo is excitable, but... You know, he, it wasn't his fault. He knew that. Right, right. Kevin Harvick did not. Did not, yes. And he went full Kevin Harvick. And, you know, I, I would have paid actually money to see the two of them go, go at it. Oh, yeah. Because Harvick had him on reach, but I think he he drops his left, and Montoya's a brawler. I, I really don't think that, that that would have been a good thing for either one of them. No, and I think Kevin would have taken him out. I really do. Well, yeah. Har- Harvick was a wrestler. Yeah. And he's – and I mean this with – uh with all due respect and love, he's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you all have to be all these race car drivers do for in some way or another. There's a little bit, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, Harvick talked about it. I was not happy at the time. We had a, a great day going and, and had things go good and go bad all throughout the year. And I knew at that point that we were close to getting in the chase, so we didn't need to need it to escalate any further than it did. So it uh, stinks going into a, a confrontation knowing that you can't use your arms. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but, you know, eventually you got to understand that he didn't do that on purpose. Right. Uh, I can't remember who pushed him into it, but it was um, it was not Juan's fault. You know, it happened, uh, and I moved on, you know. it's It was a matter of, of lack of respect, and when people don't respect you, you got to stand up for yourself, and that was it. It happened. I don't even think about it. You know, it happened, and for me it was over as soon as it was over. Montoya really, remember I was talking about different rules? Mm-hmm. He ruffled feathers in Formula One because he would use the carbon fiber horn mm. uh, on occasion, and they weren't used to that. Jacques Villeneuve the same way. Right. Yeah, And, you know, a JRM story, Regan Smith is about the cleanest driver you're going to see. Yeah. He ran the bump and run on Alex Tagliani to win at Mid-Ohio in 2015, and it was smooth, man. He didn't jack him up. He didn't lift the wheels off the ground. He moved him off and won the race. Okay, that's how you do it here. Yeah. But you touch another car over there, you're expelled. And Max Pappas is used to running with Tagliani, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Well, Max said a couple of years ago that the cup drivers on road courses, unlike maybe some of the, the fern drivers, the ferners. Uh-huh. Ringers. That, yeah, they're a lot better than uh, than what they think. These guys are definitely the best of the best I've, I've ever raced against in my life, point blank. You know, better than uh, Formula One, sports car, IndyCar, everything put together. And uh, when people say that uh, NASCAR drivers are not that good on road courses, I would definitely tell them to shut up because they're pretty damn good. <laughs> Do you know who uh, Max Pappas is married to? Uh, yes, but I can't remember. Tatiana Fittipaldi. Oh, that's right. Yes. Emerson's daughter. Can you imagine the accents in that house? Oh, my God. Portuguese and Italian <laughs> and 
and Portuguese Italian and Max is a good cat. I mean, oh, yeah, he's he's yeah. really and he's a young, he's a good driver coach. Mm-hmm. He is uh, counts uh, William Byron here at JRM as one of his students. Mm-hmm. And Justin Allgaier pays a lot of attention to him too. Right, right. So and, and I've seen you know I've seen Max in Indy cars. I've seen him in sports cars. I've seen him here in NASCAR. Good, very good guy. Very intense guy. Don't tick him off. Because he works out a lot, and he will he heal Kevin Harvick. Oh, you know, <laughs> steer clear. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's really a good guy, though. Yeah, you know, there's a trend I noticed when I was putting the show together. Mm. Winning at Watkins Glen means you have a pretty good chance of winning a NASCAR Cup Series title. Mm. Okay. Uh, Jeff Gordon in 1997 won the title that year after winning at Watkins Glen. Yeah, he did it again in '99 and 2001. Tony Stewart won at the Glen in 2002 and again in 2005, both title years for him. Yeah. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. won four titles on his own without winning at Watkins Glen. So that sort of disproves my point. <laughs> but it's interesting because if, you know, Watkins Glen, if you've got it together enough to win at Watkins Glen, you've got a good chance to win the title. Right. A guy you wouldn't think that was really good there and really smooth there was Jeff Gordon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, Gordon actually could have won a couple more, but he wheel hopped into turn one one year and Tony Stewart beat him. I've had many nightmares about turn one at Watkins Glen. I don't know if we were going to win that race. Tony was a little bit better than us. And I beat myself up more. The fact that we should have put him in the pressure situation to have to make the move rather than take ourselves out of it and just give it away. But, you know, more often than not, when he was ahead, Near the end of the race, uh, it was money in the bank. Of course, Gordon won four times there, but uh, Jeff told us that he'll remember Watkins Glen more for what went wrong than his four victories. Those are great moments, and I'm proud of those, but uh, I can't help but think of you know spinning out. I think I also ran out of gas on the last lap one time, and so I remember those, but uh, I also certainly have fond memories of coming here and enjoying the challenges. They don't forget much, do they? No, but it's it's amazing what they do remember because mm-hmm. they can lead 497 laps of a 500-mile race and remember the botch pit stop on lap 18. Yeah, you know? that's right. And that's it, right. and it's but it's it's how they it's how they're wired because you, and you never know like Mark Martin would niggle at stuff that just I mean nobody else would even think about. Now, just about every week we we say that there is always something funny that ties in with mm. what we're talking about, and Watkins Glen, no exception. Of course, our, our friend A.J. Allmendinger won the race. Uh, this was back in August of 2014. This was when Jimmy Johnson had 60, uh, 69 wins at right. that particular time. And A.J. was excited to be just 68 wins behind <laughs> Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy got like 27 championships and 197 wins. Yeah, my one's about the same. We're getting there. Making a run. Here we go. Watch out, Jimmy. <laughs> AJ Allmendinger is is really fun. You know, he's not a really big guy. Yeah. And he calls himself Big Sexy. Yeah. So, and in 2015 at Watkins Glen, Allmendinger reflected back on his win the previous year and said uh Brad Doherty just picked him up. Right. Picked him up and, you know, just dragged him around. He got the he got the bends because he's not that tall. Yeah. AJ said, uh, eh, it wasn't such a good idea. He slightly picked me up like I was a Barbie doll and just carried me around like I was a G.I. Joe or something. It was uh <laughs> I knew it was kinda of bad when he did it and then I saw the picture of it and I was like, Yeah, I lost a little bit of a man card right there. <laughs>
<laughs> well, Brad Doherty, if, you know, you've been around him too. Oh, sure. And, you know, I come from Indiana where basketball is a religion. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there imagining trying to post him up. <laughs> and and me, my little f chunky 5'11", against his in shape seven feet. He could pick us up under each arm. Well, maybe you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd... I'd I'm over. not that light. No, well, <laughs> Brad's, he's just, and he's really... It's just his pure size. Mm -hmm. I, I used to cover other sports in motorsports. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in the locker room. The Indiana Pacers played the New York Knicks in some fairly interesting basketball playoff games. Right. Um, they brought Patrick Ewing out. He is sitting on the bench at Market Square Arena. And I'm looking him straight in the eye. <laughs> He's sitting on the bench. Uh-huh. It was, it was interesting. Um, but, no, Brad is, is a neat guy. A.J. Allmendinger is... I've never seen him really, really down. Now, he lost a race, and I saw him throwing things around and cussing for a while. But after, you know, it's like somebody flipped a switch. He was he was okay after that. Yeah. But, I mean, NASCAR needs his kind of upbeatness, mm -hmm. if that's a word. And I really was happy to see him win. I was there for 2014. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there on 2015. I was re recouping from my own fight, <laughs> the Regan Smith-Ty Dillon thriller in uh, Watkins what? Glen. That was fun. That music. It must be time for buzz, isn't it? It is. It's time right. for buzz. All right. Somebody's going to win a prize. I, I, I'm sure they're going to. The <laughs> way least, we perform lately. At least I hope hope they will. That's right. This week's featured segment, as always, is called "Beat the Buzzer." It's very simple. We've managed to entice NASCAR Hall of Fame historian Buzz McKim to join us each week for this segment. And as if that isn't enough, our listeners can win prizes. 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 I like prizes. Buzz, welcome back to Back in the Day. Well, thank you, guys. It's great to be back. Hey, what are your thoughts, as, before we get going, on Watkins Glen International? I love Watkins Glen. I love the history there. Uh, I love the location of the track. If anyone's never been there, you, you can't imagine the setting for that speedway. It is absolutely phenomenal. The little village of Watkins Glen is just quintessentially Americana, and uh, it's one of my favorite places on the circuit. I love it, too. It's right near the Finger Lakes. The uh, The dinner cruise on Lake Seneca is guaranteed to make you feel really happy when you get back to the dock. Uh, we like that. Yeah. It's a wine region up there, in case you didn't know. Um, let's set this up for you. Uh, the week before each episode, we put out the call for Junior Nation and Dirty Mo followers to take to our Twitter accounts at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio and post with a hashtag back in the day tagged with at Exalta. Of those, Buzz will represent mm -hmm. one lucky fan in Beat the Buzzer against Wiley co-hosts Steve and Ron. We're always Wiley. We're Wiley, and I'm Coyote, too. <laughs> <laughs> if Buzz gets them all right. Are, are you shifty, too? We are shifty, yes, and we order stuff from Acme. Okay. <laughs> if, if Buzz gets them all right, he usually does. One lucky fan chosen randomly from that week's submitters will win a prize from Dirty Mo Radio or Exalta. So who are we playing for this week? This week, Buzz is playing for Brad York. All right, congratulations to Brad and good luck. All right, here we go. Which driver has won the most times at Watkins Glen? Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing a little bit of research recently on Watkins Glen, and that could be kind of a trick question. All right, now if, you, if you go with just the Cup Series, good old Tony Stewart, he's got five wins more than any other Cup driver. But if you include Cup and Xfinity slash 
nationwide slash Bush slash whatever, you're not going to believe it. The all-time winner with six wins is the Tasmanian devil himself, Marcus Ambrose. Wow. Wow. See, now Buzz gets one and a half for that one because we didn't have, we just had Tony Stewart. <laughs> yeah, we just had Tony Stewart. <laughs> oh, okay. Because, yeah, he's got four Xfinity uh, wins and he's got two cup wins. So, uh, but uh, you guys can divvy it up among yourself, however you think is best. <laughs> and well, and, and w- watching Marcos win is a treat. I mean, Victory Lane is awesome. He's He was a great guy on the circuit, still is. Did you know you know what he's doing now, Buzz? No, I don't. He is uh, pretty much retired from racing, and he and his wife, his family, bought a B and B in the Tasmanian area, and he is running a bed and breakfast. How about that? Now that's I would love to try that. I bet you the taxi service between uh, the city and the pickup is pretty fast. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> but my gosh, what a. What a waste of tremendously entertaining driving talent, you know, but uh, more power to him. I hope he's successful. And he needs to send us a brochure, I think. I think. We can get one. (laughs) All right. Question number two. Three drivers Mm -hmm. have won their first NASCAR Cup Series race at Watkins Glen. Who are they? Well, let me see here. I think you've got almost a hometown guy, sort of, kind of, New York State native, uh, Steve Park one back in 2000 mm-hmm. and i don't know if he could consider that his home track but he's from new york oh yeah and uh, and then and then um, a couple of years well actually in 2011 here comes ambrose you know he got his first career win there and then a few years later our little buddy uh, aj allmendinger so uh, those are about the three that i found that um, won their first race there well, Buzz, you've done it again. I thought I thought we were going to trip you up. Yeah, I thought we'd stymie him on that one. Well, this one now, <laughs> this one's going to get you. I'm I'm almost guaranteed. Okay. I, I don't think so. I think he'll get this. I know one. he'll get this one, but I'm just trying to build this up. Yeah. Okay. People want to stay until the end of this. <laughs> Question number three: Who won the first NASCAR race at Watkins Glen, Buzz? happen to know that because that car was on display here in the hall for uh for a couple of years here on glory road but uh you know folks think that uh i think most you know your average nascar fan is going to say well they've been running watkins Glen since 1986 but uh, but actually there were a couple of uh eras before that uh, they ran in 84 and uh, i'm sorry in 64 and 65 as part of the old northern tour that nascar used to have in the summertime but the actual first stock car race or NASCAR events, uh, events <laughs> for NASCAR race cars, um, it was won by Buck Baker in that 57 Chevy Black Widow, and Buck went on to win the championship that year. How's the year I was born? I was, uh, I oh was my still gosh. eight years from being born, but here you go, Buzz. <laughs> you know, I'm going to come up with the most arcane question just to see if I can beat you once. <laughs> Yeah, we love the arcane stuff. That's that's very nice. But, uh, you know, Watkins Glen is such an amazing place. So uh, a lawyer by the name of Cameron Hargett Singer, uh, who was kind of a sports car enthusiast, um, he went ahead and uh, set up that race through the streets of the village of Watkins Glen uh, after World War II. And it was really kind of the, the founding of the sports car era in America. Now, they did run some sports car racing before the war, but, uh, but you know, he really helped establish sports car racing as we know it today. And uh, they ran through the streets for a number of years, and then there was a, a safety issue, and then they went ahead and, and built a purpose-built speedway. And, uh, you know, it's been uh, fantastic ever since. Well, Buzz, what, what's going on down at, uh, at, down at the NASCAR Hall of Fame? 
Well, sir, you know, we, we do have the uh, Petty family exhibit in our uh, great hall, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, that's on it's on exhibit till about the end of August. And we have another major exhibit coming into the great hall area. I can't tell you about it now, but it's under construction. And it's going to be a lot of fun, and it'll be something really neat for the kids. And uh, we, we always have a little something going on here. We have uh, what they call uh, the second Saturday of each month, which uh, features special uh, events and programs for the kids. And you can go on um, NASCARHall.com and check out all the details. And we would be absolutely thrilled to pieces to have you come by and see us. So with the uh, the family, the Petty family exhibit, what are some of the more interesting uh, things they could see? Oh, okay. Very interesting. Uh, one of the things that was so poignant, there's a beautiful carved jade statue of a, um, I don't know, maybe it's some kind of a Vietnamese warrior or something like that. But um, uh, back around, I think it was around 1968 or so, Kyle Petty was this little guy. And Richard went over there, I guess, for Ford for a, a goodwill tour for the Army. And uh, or for the uh, you know, U.S. Um, you know, fighting forces, and um, Kyle didn't quite understand the war thing, and he 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 felt that when Richard went over there, that he wasn't going to come back, and uh, and he was just you know scared to death that you know you go over there, you don't come back. Well, you know, Richard brought this beautiful statue, this beautiful carving back, and gave it to Kyle, and um, you know, I mean, Kyle was just thrilled to have his dad back, but that statue has such a deep profound meaning to him and um it, it's it's such a very interesting story to hear that and you know how a little kid was perceived uh perceived a, a, a very bad situation wow. and um and you know, how uh, it, it was a tremendously um uh, a private thing or a personal thing for kyle and he was willing to share that with us and we thought man that's really pretty cool and then we have Richard's trumpet that he uh, he, <laughs> that he played Richard's well, in high school. Trumpet. We have Richard played a trumpet. Yes. Wow! And we have a hand handwritten note from Fred Lorenzen congratulating Richard on a win at Talladega back in the seventies. We thought, man, that's pretty neat. Huh. You know that uh, one one of his competitors or former competitors would uh, would send him a congratulatory note. Fellow Hall of Famer, very neat too. stuff. Uh, thing? Oh yes, as a matter of fact. And so many things that are in this exhibit have never been seen before. They came right from the personal archives of each petty family member. So it's something you really need to see. And uh, we're very, very proud of it. And we're extending the exhibit about a month. We were supposed to button it up this month, uh, this week. And we decided to let it go another month through, uh, through August. So uh, you all still have time to come check it out. It's very, very nice. We have a lot of trophies. We have a lot of uh, cars and all that sort of thing. Something for everybody, you know. Neat. I love it. That's a, I'm, I'm going to go do that as soon as I get off the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, as always, it's, it's a joy to be with you guys and to speak to the folks out in Dirty Mode land. And uh, it just, it, it's so nice to be a part of this whole thing, and I certainly do appreciate that. That's it for this episode of Back in the Day. Thanks to Buzz McKim, our resident NASCAR guru, for playing along with us again. And keep an eye on at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio for the opportunity to play along. Remember, history is made every day, so be a part of it with Back in the Day. Thanks for listening to Dirty Mo Radio. If you love Dale Jr., then Exalta Racing is your go-to social media account on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It brings you insider's info all weekend long on the 88 team. It's at Exalta Racing, a must-follow for any Dell Jr. fan.